so things are really bad right now. Um, not on my street. I live on this amazing street filled with all the privileges that um, the white middle class get right now. Uh, I don't know of anybody on my street that's out of a job um, or that's been uh, abused by the police or by the system. And looking around this room, probably nobody in this room has experienced some of the worst of what's going on in America right now. But for a lot of America right now, things are bad. Um, they're very, very bad. And we need to be honest about that. Six days ago, George Floyd, a black man, was arrested in Minneapolis. And during the arrest for eight minutes, a police officer kept Mr. Floyd lying face down, hands cuffed behind his back, uh, while pressing his knee into Mr. Floyd's neck. You need to watch the video. His pain, does, what happened, does not need to be ignored. And if it's hard to watch, you need to watch it. He begs the police officer, I can't breathe. You're going to kill me. People standing by say, he's not moving anymore. Somebody checked his pulse and said his pulse is gone. And the policeman never moved his knee. He never moved his knee until he stopped talking, stopped moving, went unconscious, and he soon died. Now, on the same day in New York's Central Park, um, a black man, Christopher Cooper, was bird watching. There was a woman in the park, a white woman, uh, with her dog not on the leash. And he, it's, you're supposed to have your dog on the leash, and part of the reason is it, it, it's negative impact on the um, habitat for the birds. The, Mr. Cooper asked the woman to please put her dog on a leash, and she got very angry at him, and you should watch this video. She walks up to him. He starts videotaping. It becomes a weird situation, and she starts threatening him. If you don't stop videotaping me, I'm going to call the police and tell them that you're threatening me. And he said, well, go ahead and call the police. And she starts screaming. She becomes irrational. She calls the police, and then she fakes a scream as if she's being attacked. And she says, an African-American man is trying to, he's threatening me and my dog. And he's just videotaping. He's not doing anything. And she, it's awful. It's really awful. Just three weeks before this, a video surfaced of the killing of Ahmaud Aubrey. Again, you should watch this, especially if you don't want to, especially if you're white. You should watch all of these videos, right? Ahmaud Aubrey is jogging, and two men hunt him down while another man films it, and they kill him. Yet another black man to join a long list of black victims who should not have been killed, challenged, or even suspected. They were people who have done nothing wrong. And this was just two months after the police killed Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old Louisville ER technician, a black woman. She was tragically killed in her own home. The last time I checked this morning, as I said earlier, violent riots have broken out in 75 cities across America, and 10 states have called in the National Guard. Things are bad. 
They are very, very bad. And here we are, as Christians have done for centuries upon centuries, we've come to worship in the middle of stuff that is really sad and confusing and painful and complicated and we have grief and we have fear and we have anger and we have numbness and here we are we're seeking the Lord because we need God in these kind of moments we need to come to church because we need God we need his word we need his direction we need his counsel and God set us up for this because uh Nine months ago, eight months ago, I gathered with a group of pastors for three days of prayer and discussion. And a major part of the reason we gathered was to figure out what we were going to, as a group, preach on this spring and this summer. And we picked the book of James. After all that praying and all that discussion, and the passage that landed on today is the passage that we read earlier. I didn't pick this because of the moment. This is what God, you know, somebody says, oh, all you Christians are, say God answers prayer. It's just coincidence. And the response was, yeah, but when I pray, a lot more coincidences occur. And so here we are, you know, this week while all this is playing out, you know what I spend my week reading and praying and studying? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. As our country is being torn by anger. This is God's word. Soren Kierkegaard, one of my favorite philosophers, his favorite book of the Bible, he's a devout Christian, was the book of James. And he said, one thing we learn in the book of James is you must always say, when you read the Bible, this is God speaking to me. To me. So when it says, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, that's you. You should be slow to get angry right now. You should get angry right now be slow to anger does not mean don't get angry because it says be slow to speak that certainly doesn't mean don't ever speak and 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 part of what it means right now is that our first response to what's going on must not be to interpret the current african-american anger as hasty there was a long build-up As the mayor of Minneapolis said this past weekend, while thoroughly condemning the violence and the destruction coming out of the riots, he also said, quote, condemned all the riots, the mayor of Minneapolis. And then he said, but this is the result of so much built up anger and sadness that has been ingrained in our black community, not because of five minutes on Monday, but 400 years. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1967, 11 months before he was assassinated, delivered a speech at Stanford University to a room filled with white people. And in that speech, the title of it was The Other America. He condemned the rioting that had begun to occur. The civil rights movement was... um, Complex, and there was lots of factors to it. And uh, the black power movement had begun to develop. Um, And they were having civil rights marches, and they were beginning to devolve into riots. And Martin Luther King Jr. at Stanford to a group of very elite, very white people, he said, rioting is bad. He said, you need to know that when I'm talking to the African American community, I am always condemning the riots. Nonviolence is the only way. And he, gets, he got this from the Bible. He said, violence will always hurt. 
It's socially destructive. It's self-destructive. He said, that is not the way. But then he went on to say, and yet, it is morally irresponsible to condemn the riots without also at the same time condemning the conditions which lead people to feel they must engage in riotous activities. And he went on to say that America must see, quote, riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn the riots. And in the final analysis, he famously said, a riot is the language of the unheard. The exact wrong response is to presume this is hasty anger. That's a quite privileged, removed response. Now, I'm not saying, you know, the reports are coming out about all the other people involved right now from out of stirring and agitating. Don't let that in any way confuse the issue that we have this litany of black men killed. George Floyd, Christopher Cooper, Breonna Taylor are only the most recent human beings who've been tragically reduced to becoming hashtags. The rage of the black community is in the face of black death occurring too regularly. Now, is there white death occurring? Absolutely. But the difference is, black death keeps occurring in a community, in a society that was founded on slavery. So that gives it a total different meaning to be interpreted. And we have to come to see that with that. We have to recognize there is a slow 400-year buildup of anger here. The rage of the black community is in the face of this context. Eight years ago, Trevon Martin was killed for having brown skin and wearing a hoodie. And he became a proxy for everyone's thoughts about race and justice. That was eight years ago, and the killing continues. The string of black deaths continue from Sandra Bland to Alton Sterling to Raika Boyd and Emmanuel Nine and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And as we listen to God's word in this moment, it's to you. God is saying to you and to me. He's saying, Aubrey, know this, my beloved brother. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to be angry. And you know what that says to me this week? I must become angry. I must feel 400 years of injustice. And I, would, I must let that grow in me an anger. We must face the stark reality that slavery was a monster. There was no benevolent slavery. There was no kind, genteel matron of the household who treated kindly the people she owned. It was a monster that made monsters out of those who were the masters. And as a society, we placed a stigma on the color of the black man and the black woman. And that sin haunts our society today. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., we live in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity, yet millions find themselves perishing on a lonely island of poverty. Here, here's the history we must learn. I've said it to our church before, but I'm going to say it again because we have to learn it. You have to know it. You have to memorize it. It has to get all the way down in your guts until this becomes a perspective from which you interpret the injustices that occur. There have been four great 
sins against the African-American community after slavery. After slavery occurred, four great sins that have continued to impoverish the African-American community to disproportionate numbers. You need to know this history as my friend. Chris Johnson, the pastor of Duck, told me, Aubrey, there's always two histories. The one you tell and the one we know. And this is that other history. This is the other America. You have to know this. I was never taught this. I had to learn this over the last few years. Number one, African Americans were excluded from the Homestead Act of 1862. Our government developed a policy where pioneers could purchase 160 acres of public land in the western U.S. for a small fee after living on it for five years. My ancestors were a part of that. You could do this unless you were African American. You weren't allowed if you were African American. And the current devastating reality is that 25% of the current U.S. population age 25 and older has a legacy of property ownership that is rooted in the Homestead Act of 1862. My wife and I, we own a house on Franklin Street today, and I can trace you back to how the Homestead Act of 1862 brought property ownership into my family that has been carried on from generation to generation to generation to generation. And that is a primary reason I was able to buy a house. Number two. From the 1930s through the 1960s, African Americans were shut out of the single greatest federal wealth building initiative in our nation's history. FHA backed mortgages. And through the widespread practice of redlining, where banks refused to give loans in communities that had more African Americans living, that had a few African Americans living in them, this again excluded from wealth building the African American community. Suddenly, they couldn't have access to the cheap money to buy a home, and home ownership is one of the most fundamental factors in a family's creation of wealth. Third, because of their lack of access to the FHA-based mortgages, African Americans were exposed to vicious predatory lenders. What happened is that when an African American couldn't get a mortgage through the FHA-backed mortgage system because of redlining, the only option was to purchase a home through a means called contract. Contract purchase is a predatory agreement that combined all the responsibilities of home ownership with all the disadvantages of renting. So you're as responsible for the house as an owner, but you have the power of a renter. However, unfortunately, none of the benefits of renting that normally occur were part of the system. So the FHA adopted a racial policy that we could well call Nuremberg Laws. Keep in mind, many African Americans living today, this is their family history that they know. They can tell you about this. It's not ancient history. I mean, between the years 2000 and 2013, Wells Fargo and Bank Corp South practiced race-based predatory lending and redlining in Memphis, Tennessee. The fourth great economic systemic act done against the African-American community, and this is just talking about the economics of it, was in the 1950s and 60s, racist government housing policies destroyed black homes and communities in the name of urban renewal. Here's how it happened in Harrisonburg. 
I've told you this, but you've got to memorize this. You've got to know this. In 1958, our city developed Project R4, and it targeted a 28-acre tract that lay between Main Street, Gay Street, Rock Street, and Johnson Street. The city took photos of all the buildings in the area so that they could be appraised and their owners reimbursed as they forced their owners to leave. It was an early lesson in the city's use of eminent domain laws. Homes were not the only structures bulldozed and burned. The project also took down African-American churches and businesses, as well as the city's Jewish synagogue. Residents were moved into some of our city's first housing projects, and much of the land was put to commercial use. So we tore down a community and replaced it with the county office building, 7-Eleven, Roses, AutoZone, and their giant parking lots. And the building that our church was able to purchase. The bank building that we purchased so that we can move. Now what is the result of these four big economic moves against the African American community? Well largely because of these social injustices, median wealth among white families is 11 times higher than among black families in the United States today. The Pew Research Center reports that as of 2013, the median net worth of a white household in America was $141,900. The median net worth of a black household in America was $11,000. And a primary reason for that is not intelligence, it's not self-discipline, it's not morality, it's not whatever. A primary reason are these four economic things I put my, I've named just now. What I'm saying is that conditions have been occurring. Our country has moved from slavery to Jim Crow to the mass incarceration of the black male. Combined with these economic factors, that's going on here. And don't let the outsiders coming into the riots change that. What it means is when when the Bible says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry, you're being commanded. Be slow to anger. For some people, that means slow way down. Your anger is too fast. But I think for a lot of white America right now, it means become angry. It's not enough to be not racist. We have to become anti-racist. When our church brought Jamar Tisby, an African-American historian, to speak in our town on the issue of race, He told us about this. He said that you've got to know that because the structure has these built-in inequalities, it's as if all of America, think of it like those moving walkways in an airport. So the structure has these inequalities built in it toward the African-American community. The racist is the person who's just running down that walkway, running with the flow. The non-racist is the one who's not going with it. He's just standing there. But the whole culture is still carrying. I was still able to buy a house. We were still able to buy a building. Like, but, but it's all got this in it. The anti-racist is the one who turns around and runs against it. And that's what we need to recognize today. It's not enough to be not racist. We must be slow to anger. It must come. It must grow in us. So that's God's word to us. But what about verse 20? When you get angry, 
when the slow anger comes up in you, be careful. Because anger is dangerous. And the anger of man does not produce the justice that God requires. By the way, your, your Bible might say righteousness. That word can, dikeosune in Greek, it can be translated either way. And it's important right now to know that it's also about justice. That justice is what America needs right now. But notice what, what James is telling us. He's saying that as we recognize that for so many of those involved in the riots, what we are seeing is public lament. That's what public lament looks like for those for whom their lament has not been heard. This, the riots are a form of lamentation and grief. The ashes are symbolic of decades and generations of pain and anguish. And as we come to see the racist aspects of our democratic structures and our judicial system, we must let it drive us to an anti-racist anger. But when we do, it must be an anti-racism held back by love. See, love has this amazing thing. It's love that causes me to identify with someone who even though their color of skin is different than mine, they are made in the image of God. So it's love that forces, forced me this week to watch these videos. I didn't want to watch them. I wept. I looked away. And I forced myself to go back to the point where I looked away and to watch it. It was love that called me to do that. Because if this had happened to any of you, and I refused to engage it, I refused to think about it or let it into my heart, how rude would that be if Heather had been brutally traumatized? How bad would it be if I, her pastor, refused to think about it or engage with it? So it's love that drives us to that. But here's the catch. God's love not only pushes us, it holds us back from the sinful violence that can come from righteous anger. Love pushes and love pulls. What we are hearing from God is that, yes, there is such a thing as righteous anger, but anger and sin are never far apart. And so when we live in this kind of moment as a society, we are living in a dangerous place. A place where we've got to do something that is fraught with danger. What danger? Violence. And so when we grow angry over injustice, and that's the anger James is talking about here, when we have that anger, we must be ever mindful of the possibility of sin. Notice, James refuses to let the sins that come out of anger off the hook. Because this is verse 21. Notice verse 21. He's still talking about anger and sin. And he says, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. What, what is he calling filthy? Violence, the anger, the sins that come out of anger. He calls them filthy. The sins that come out of anger he calls wickedness. How in the world can you possibly do that? How can you get the righteous anger that slowly grows over half a millennia? How can you get that? That anger welling up inside of you and not end up doing a thing that's wrong that you use your anger and the righteousness of it to justify. 
How in the world can we look at the injustice around us? How can we bring into our hearts the humiliation and the pain and the suffering and the injustice and not let that anger become toxic and an excuse for committing the same sin that you're mad about? Harming somebody, using your power over somebody. He gives us two ways. Two ways that Christians can stand in this painful place and not be destroyed by it or destroyers of the community. Number one, put away all filthiness and rampant anger. Number one, in other words, refuse to let injustice and righteous anger be an excuse for violence, for screaming, for hurting people, whether it's the police or your spouse or your children or your neighbor. Violence, whether it's with your fist or your words, is sin. And the blessed little housewife driving down 81 who gets mad at the person for driving poorly must know that that angry spew of words that come out of her mouth are filthy and rank wickedness. Whether the violence coming out of you is in your words or your attitude or your southern genteel country club cold shoulder it is filthy and it is wicked. And you have to get rid of that. You have to name it. You have to get rid of it. You have to put it away. That's the first thing. We must get rid of that evil. And this is not the evil. I'm not talking about the evil of the perpetrator of injustice. I'm talking about the evil of the victim who gives in to the anger and lashes out in violence. That's the first thing. The second thing we have to do is receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. You can't, do bo- you can't do just one or the other. You've got to do both. You've got to get rid of the violent reaction, but you've also got to receive with meekness the word that's implanted and able to save your soul. Do you know what it means to receive God's word with meekness? It means you make a decision to trust that Jesus is always smarter than you. And so if he says it, he's right. And you're not. To receive God's word with meekness means God's way is always the best way. God's laws are always for life. God's guidelines, God's will are always good even when you don't understand it or you disagree with it. To receive with meekness means you accept his teaching without debate. And notice what it says. It is able to save your soul. God's word really is capable of changing you and rescuing you from all of the toxic, dangerous possibilities that come with looking injustice square in the face. God's word has the power to save you. And you've got to know that. You've got to own it. So my question is, are you doing that? Are you reading the scriptures regularly, daily? Are you memorizing them because you really believe that you've got to get the scripture, the word of God, all the way into your heart because it's got to be rooted there. It's got to be planted there so that it can grow and save you from the dangerous moment we're living in right now. 
This morning, we should mourn the destruction of business and buildings, of neighborhoods and property. And we must mourn even more the destruction of black lives. We must lament the regular ending of black lives. We must be outraged about the daily vulnerability and insecurity of black lives. And as we do this, we must renew our commitment to repent of our sins to get rid of wickedness from our lives, to daily read Scripture with the real humility and meekness that's required for Scripture to save us. And let us once again look to the cross of Christ because that was God's rebuke of abusive power. And let us find the resources as we gaze on the cross of Christ. Let us find the resources in the words of James Baldwin to not hate the hater whose foot is on your neck. May God have mercy on us as we continue to walk through this season of intense trials. Because the end is not in sight. It's not. May God have mercy. Let's pray.